0: I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. If you want to pull out your outlines, we're going to be filling those out as well. As I've mentioned here um, the last few weeks, Paul always starts with doctrine. The first three chapters of doctrine, chapter 4, 5, and 6, deal with practicality. I'm sorry, just chapters 4 and 5. There is no 6. And the practicality or the practice of putting these things into practice are what, what Paul is writing all about. And he's telling us how to, how to continue on in the faith, especially for a young church like the people in Thessalonica. And what, what Paul had taught them was how to live, how to walk, how to work, how to do things uh, as, as, as they prepare for the second coming of Christ. And so up to this point, Paul must have received some sort of report because now he goes into, well, you know, these are some things that you should be doing because Jesus Christ will come back. But we don't want you to be uninformed because he is coming back for even those that have died. Those that have died or or sleep in Christ is what he says. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. And we don't want you to be just doing nothing while you're waiting. You got to keep doing what you're doing until he arrives. In other words, if you're a baker, keep baking. If you're a politician, keep politicizing. If you are a uh, a handyman or a, a craftsman of some sort, keep being crafty and doing the work that you're called to do. If you're a teacher, keep teaching. If you're a pastor, keep pastoring. If you're a if you're a mom, keep being a mom. And what what Paul was trying to get across is you, you have to keep doing what it is that God has called you to do. Now we've been through this Will of God several times. What is God's will for my life? Does he want me to be a teacher? Does he want me to be a pastor? Does he want me to get married? Who does he want me to marry? What kind of work does he want me to do? And basically is is uh, we've been finding out God's will first and foremost is number one that you be saved. That is his will. Number two is your sanctification. In other words being set apart. And we talked about that last week. This is how we please our father. We please our Father by being set apart, by being holy. God is holy, and we ourselves need to be holy. God has set some parameters, and He says, this is where I want you to stay. By doing these things, He tells the people of Israel, by being circumcised, by eating certain foods, by staying away from other foods, by celebrating my Sabbath, the seventh day, which I've created to be holy, by doing all these things, you show the world that you're different. And as we studied the word holy, we come to find out that holy and the opposite of holy is not necessarily unholy, but the opposite of holy is common. And the word common and uncommon is the same thing as saying holy and unholy. And so God says, I don't want you to be unholy or common like the rest of the world. I want, you to be, I want you to be uncommon. I want you to be different. I want you to be separate. I want you to be holy from the rest of the world. This is why I've given you these parameters. This is why I gave you these boundaries. I want you to live within these boundaries. And when you do that, everybody's going to say, wow, you're a peculiar people. You don't do like everybody else does. Come on, everybody else is doing it. It's common sense. Anybody anybody anytime someone tells you that it's common sense, if it's not biblical sense, it is unholy sense. And when if when people are saying, "Come on, everybody is doing it." You see, but but I live in these boundaries. You don't have to say I'm a Christian as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that right now. The way you live ought to dictate who you are. The way that you live, people ought to say, "You're a peculiar type of person. You're different. You don't do things the way Everybody else is doing it. No, because I have these boundaries that God has given me. And so Paul has is already talked to them about how to live and, and also to expect the second coming of Christ. In our culture today, I keep hearing this over and over again. You know, people say, I stopped looking for the signs You know, all the signs are already in front of us. I'm just waiting to hear the trumpet sound, you know, because the trumpet sound is the first thing that's going to happen. As soon as the trumpet sound hits, the dead in Christ will study this next week. The dead in Christ are going to rise first and we who are left behind will be caught up. In the air with Jesus Christ. We're going to spend some time on the rapture. The rapture is uh, there is no sign for the rapture. There is no uh, n- no warning as far as the rapture is concerned. As a matter of fact, the rapture is one big sign. It starts everything from that point forward. Seven years, and I don't know how the world is going to explain all of a sudden thousands and millions of Christians are going to be gone. People are going to be gone. I don't know how that's going to happen, but you know they're going to do their best to deceive everyone as they've been doing so already. And so if we're living in this culture and you're recognizing and seeing the perversity and the anger and the hatred toward God and God's people and everything that's going on in the world. I spoke to you guys here a while back about a couple of Sundays ago about a movie that just came out on July 4th and it's The Sound of Freedom. And it was It was directed and made by Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel was the man that played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And he explains on how he went through all the dehydration as he hung on the cross. He wasn't necessarily nailed to the cross, but he hung there in the cold for hours while they were filming. And he experienced dehydration. He experienced dislocation of bones, pretty much what Jesus Christ experienced. And if you look at his face, you can say, wow, that's a good actor. He wasn't acting. He was really literally going through the agony and the pain of being exposed without the actual whipping, without the nails in his hands and feet, just the exposure of hanging on a cross. He made this movie called The Sound of Freedom. The Sound of Freedom has to deal with children who are being bought and sold in slavery, sex trafficking. And there's so much sex trafficking going on. And they, they steal, they, they kidnap kids from all over the world. And they import them and export them, whoever wants them to the highest bidder. And the children are being just used in such a ugly and terrible way. And you know, it's, it's interesting because when this movie came out, all of a sudden, the news media is saying, this is very controversial, really. It should be controversial. You shouldn't be saying it's controversial. You should be saying, this is not right. Well, you know, this is very political. It's politicized. And, and they're making all kinds of excuses about it. Now, I don't know if you remember the movie that came out here a couple of years ago called Cuties. Now, Cuties was about children being used in, in, in all kinds of different ways. And the media praised that movie. Now, this is at least giving you an idea. If you're paying attention to what's going on out there, if you're waking up and realizing that the world hates your kids and what they're doing to them in schools and how they're teaching them what they're doing to them. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to that, what's going on, then, then I, I don't know what else to tell you. I can only share with you bits and pieces of what I know but you need to be inform yourself of what's going on in the world out there how all of this is just becoming so ugly and and, the, and the, the 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 slave that is the slavery that's being done with these kids and and where they're sending these kids and as i said last week the number one nation that is receiving these children is the united states of america people are crossing the border with kids of all ages and it, it is it is so depraved. It is so wicked. It is so ugly out there with everything that's going on in the school system, the drug paraphernalia, and everything else that's happening. People are saying, you know what? Jesus is coming. And for a lot of people, people say, you know what? Just, I'm just, I'm closing my eyes. I'm, you know what? I see no evil, hear no evil. I don't speak no evil. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come. And it's very simple to do that. It's very easy just to say, you know what? The world can have it. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for to hear the trumpet. And that's what was got kind of going on here with the people in Thessalonica. Paul had said to them, well, you know, Jesus is coming, so you guys need to wait for him. And we're going to find out in 2 Thessalonians as to what Paul's. we'll talk a little bit about that today. But we're going to find out in 2 Thessalonians how these people were up on a hill. Paul says, well, what are those guys doing up there? And they say to him, well, they're, they're kind of waiting for Jesus. Well, and, and so why are you guys taking them food? It because they're They're hungry. How come they're not working? Because they're waiting for Jesus. And then Paul says, and I always thought it was my mom that said this. And Paul says, if he doesn't eat, if he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Period. You know, just leave them alone because you have to be about the Lord's business. You got to take care of your home. Got to take care of your family. You got to proclaim the gospel. Keep going and keep going. Paul starts to give us a little bit of a a taste of that in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 verses 9 through 12. Let me read that, lead you into a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of do an expository teaching on this portion of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Paul says, Now. You know in other words he 's changing the subject he's you know I' talked to you guys about how it is that we should behaved and and the things that we should do in verse seven for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who grieves his holy spirit in you to you. Paul had just talked to us about sexual immorality, and we talked about that last week on how it it, it, it controls people and how it, it, it is so pervasive. And he's talking to the people in the church. Beloved, he's not talking to the world. He's talking to the Thessalonians that are in this church in Thessalonica. Paul must have heard something and he says, you know, you got to abstain from sexual immorality. And I kind of went over the history of sexual immorality and how it was so pervasive in that community because of the gods and the worshiping and the, the, the prophetists and the priests that were prostitutes, that they would sell themselves, that if you were to have sex with the prostitute or temple prostitute, it would cause you to be closer to their deity. And so therefore, it was just, it was just all over the place. Kind of like our culture today. It's in our movies, it's in our songs, it's in, our, you know, it's in everything around us. It's in, you see it in our commercials, you see it in so many different things. It's almost impossible to stay away from because it is so there. And Paul says, stay away from that stuff. Stay away from that stuff. And so their culture necessitated for Paul to remind them to stay away from sexual immorality. And he says, You need to be holy, separate. You got boundaries. God is separate. He's holy. He's pure. And he's, he, he's, he's holy and he's, he's perfect. We can never be perfect, but we can be separate from the world. Because God says, Be separate. Be holy the way I am holy. Be separate. From the way I am holy. So then he comes out in verse nine and says, Now, okay, I already talked to you about this sensual love, this sexual love. I want to talk to you about this brotherly love. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father in heaven, help us to take this portion of scripture, understand it in its context of the people in the first century, and bridge the lesson that we need for today in our life, so that we can apply it in our own understanding, in our own life, as the word teaches. Father, we don't want to get our own interpretation. We don't want to find out something other than what your word says. So help us to see that this morning, and convict us where it needs to be convicting. Change us where it needs to be changed. Father, help us to continue on, as Paul says, to continue doing more and more in the places that we are excelling and abounding. So lead us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How to please your father. It's a continued section of last week. God says, you know, I want you to be holy. I want you to I want you to be separate. You know, stay away from sexual immorality. You know, we ask you, as a matter of fact, in verse one, he says then of chapter four. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. He says, we urge you. I'm pleading with you. You've heard me say a few times through the book of Thessalonica or the Thessalonians that Paul uses a lot of military terms. He commands. He says that we are being obstructed. There's a lot of military terms that he uses as he instructs and he teaches. And so there's terms. But here Paul regresses back to, you know what, I, I beg you. I I urge you, I want you to know that you, you can please God. Number one, stay away from sexual immorality and the things that we talked about last week. And here today, he says, what I want you to do is concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, something was going on in the people of Thessalonica. People, something was going on with them because they were loving already. And Paul got the word that these guys are just loving brothers, man. You can't take that love away from them. They love each other genuinely. They love each other with this genuine love. Paul, I want you to know this. Remember, Paul was in, uh, in a different country, a different city. And he sent Timothy and Silas. And he sent them, uh, actually Timothy, and he sent them to go find out what was going on because he got chased out of town and didn't have much time to really disciple these people. He says, I wonder what happened with the teaching that we sent them. And when Timothy comes back, he says, Paul, you wouldn't believe what's going on. These guys are growing. These guys are abounding in love. Oh, people are getting, are, are getting to hear the word of the gospel and, and they're hearing about Jesus Christ. They're hearing about how to live their lives. They're hearing that he's coming back again. And everybody is so excited about the teaching that we taught them. And so Paul says, "Okay, well, I need to write them this encouraging letter. And He says, man, I'm so encouraged. I I love the fact that you guys are doing this. Oh, it just blesses my heart. And I want you to continue to please God. He says concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Paul says, here it is, this love that you have for the brothers. We use that word love like you wouldn't, you know, sometimes we don't know. But number one, we please God by loving each other more and more. We please God by loving each other more and more. The word love is the word that we throw around. I mean, just willy nilly. I love pizza. I love my house. I love my car. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my children. I love you guys. And we throw that word around. I'm so in love with this person that I want to marry them. I, I, I love how you, you talk and you speak. and I love the way you draw or dress or whatever the case may be. That word love is used for just about everything. To some extent, it has lost its original true meaning. And it's interesting because the Greeks had at least five or six different words that they used for love. And in the New Testament, there's only two but there, there are at least four that I want to talk about today. And one of them is eros, which refers to physical love. And we've talked about this before, but I just want to remind you this of this again. Eros is a physical love, and it gives our, it's where we get our English word erotic. Now, eros doesn't have to be sinful, but in Paul's day, its main emphasis was sensual. It was a sensual type of erotic type of love. And you can have this uh, erotic love for your spouse, your wife, but when it's used in a sinful manner, it's used for just the flesh to do whatever it wants. And the word eros is never used in the New Testament. And there's another word that is not used in the New Testament either, but it's called storge. Storge refers to that family love, the love of (coughs) parents for their children. (coughs) So instead of saying, I love my children, I love my mom, I love my dad, they would say, I storge my mom, I storge my parents, I storge my children. You know, if you want to say you want to love your wife, you would say, I eras my wife, I eras my husband, because they elicit that emotion within me. So, so that's how they would use these words. And us, we only, we only have the one word and we use it for everything. But the word that, uh, that are in scripture, and it's this one here, first of all, there's also the word and you know this it's agape. Agape is a love that is is a love that is of God from God to God and it's simply just saying it's unconditional. It's a love that only comes from God and it's a love based not on feelings but it, it expresses our wills. Agape love treats others as God would treat them regardless of how we feel, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how we feel toward them. Regardless we just love. And God says, that's the kind of love we ought to have for one another. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the love that Paul is talking about here is phileo love. Phileo love is deep affection, such as in friendship or even in marriages sometimes. Phileo love is, um, and, and the word that is used here is Philadelphia. Adolfos is the word for brother. Phileo is love. It's a brotherly love. It's the, that's the name of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. The city is the city of brotherly love. And so here, what Paul is trying to get across is this brotherly love that you guys have increased, that you guys have for each other. It's the brotherly love that we have for one another. The fact that we're able to spend time together and fellowship together and have coffee together and laugh together and just enjoy each other's company because we have this brotherly love. And Paul would come here and he would say, you know, you guys got some great brotherly love. There's some great fellowship here. But but he would go on to say in the end of this portion of scripture but i want you to do this more and more i want you to abound in it we'll touch on that here in just a bit and so philadelphia translates that and this is what jesus said when he told his disciples in john 13 34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to have this kind of love for one another And so this brotherly love that he talks about is what we should have. He says, I don't really need to tell you anything about this. You guys kind of just figured that out on your own. And it's not that you figured it out on your own. You were taught by God to love one another. God the Father taught you how to love each other. He did so because you became Christians. And the moment you become Christians, your love abounds for other Christians. It's just a natural byproduct. Just like fish, All they know how to do is swim because they were born in the water. That is their natural byproduct. Eagles, they soar and they fly because that's their natural byproduct. That's who they are. Their natural instinct causes them to fly and to hunt, pray. A Christian, his natural instinct is God's nature. And God's nature is love. And a Christian's nature should be to love one another. That brotherly love. Now we have love for the world. That's more of a concerned love than it is a storge or eros love. But we have love for there is not an agape love and sometimes it's not even a Philadelphia love. It is more of a concerned love, which is another Greek word. The Greeks had six different words on how to use these, this word love and we only have one. But if you're a believer, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, God is the one that has taught you. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5 in your outlines. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first fruit? What's the first characteristic of the fruit? What is it? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and you got self-control. And when you have the fruit of the Spirit in you, you have love. You have this agape love for God and this agape love for other believers. But you also have this Philadelphia love, brotherly love. And, and it just, it, it, if you're a believer, that's just your natural byproduct. You do that because you do that. You, you know, somebody... I was just talking to a, uh, a very good friend of ours here at church, and he wasn't here last Sunday because they had other commitments. And I said, Brother, I missed you, man. It was like, I hadn't seen you for months. And then he shows up and he hears all this news. What? Well, when that happened? When that happened? And see what happens when you miss a week? Because <laughs> I love you, man. I got this brotherly love for you. And so, you know, I understand. I understand things come up. When, when, you are, when you are a Christian, you receive this Holy Spirit that indwells in you and you are taught. God shows you. He pours out his love in you. And that's what Paul says. I didn't have to teach that to you. You know, we didn't have to show you this. He says concerning blood and love, no one, no one. You had no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's just a natural byproduct. And, and that's what happens when you love. For God so loved the world that he gave. And when you love, you give of yourself. You give of your in gifts and whatever the case may be. You give your love. Because that's what God does. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2, 9, in your outlines, it says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. You cannot be in the world. Excuse me. You cannot be in the church and say, I hate that brother. Oh, he did me wrong. Oh, I don't like that guy, you know, because of what he's done. You know, if you are in the light, you have no choice but to love somebody. I have a friend of mine that says, brother, I love you. And you got no choice about that, man. I just I just do. And you can't do nothing about it. He says, all right, give me your love. But then he goes on and says, John says this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. You cannot say you hate a Christian. You dislike him? You don't want anything to do with him? You cannot say that I'm not going back to that church because of that one person. You know churches break up more often than than not not over doctrinal issues, but because of personal issues. People leave the church because they don't like somebody in the church. The pastor said something to them or somebody else did something to them. But it's not about doctrine. And this is why we say we walk in the light. Look at the next verse. Again, 1 John three fourteen. 14. We, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is how you know you've got eternal life. This is, this is a sign. And, and, and this is a, uh, an indication. I use this a lot. One of the indicators is, number one, you want to be here. You want to learn. You want to get closer to God. Number two, you want to be with the fellow brethren. Because you love them. Your desire is to be there. You know, And it's not in order, number one and number two, you know, but I think the very first thing that indicates that you're a Christian is that you, you love God, you want to know more about God. And then another indicator, if you want to put it number two, is that you love one another. Because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And they were trying to trick him up. Because they they had this idea that, oh, this is the great commandment, this is the first commandment. You know, these are all. Jesus, what's the first commandment? What's the greatest commandment? he says to them, well, first of all, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your being. That's the greatest commandment. That's number one. You know what number two is? Number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody has to teach you that. No, I don't have to come up here and and, and teach you, okay, here's how you love. Here's how you do these things. Love is the one thing that was going out in all the world by, by the people around them. He says here again, he says, nobody had to teach you this for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He says, you're doing this to everyone. And, and you're, you're doing this because, because of who you are. And, and then he says, you know, but, but I want you to do this uh, and I don't have to teach this to you. I understand. I've heard. But we urge you. Again, there's that word urge. I plead with you. I, I'm, I'm begging you. What does he say? Brothers, to do this more and more. You see, we can get complacent in this love. We can get complacent and just taking advantage of the fact that they're not here or they're here. Hey, how you doing? We, we can get so... Uh, accustomed and used to it Paul says no let that grow let that grow and the more I come to know you the more you come to know me that should be the one thing that we do on a regular basis and it should continue to grow and I think that a lot of churches a lot of places what happens is that their, their, their love grows cold I don't know if you remember the church in Ephesus in, in, in uh, Revelation turn with me to Revelation in the book of revelation chapter 2 it's the last book second chapter verse 1 jesus is writing to the churches and he says to them i want you to i want you to check yourselves here's some of the things that i see in the church in ephesus he says the angel of the lord, excuse me, to the angel of the church in ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Lamp stamps. I, I I'll have to explain that later, but he's the one that's, that's holding the churches, basically, the seven pastors. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You know, Jesus says to this church, you guys are pretty right on with evil. You guys don't let any evil into your church. You've tested some of the apostles. You found out they were false. You guys don't put up with false doctrine. You guys are good. You guys are so solid in your doctrine and in your teaching that, you know, I I can't really say anything about that. And that's good. That's a good thing. You would think, right? And he says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. In other words, you know, you you have endured. There's persecution happening in the church. You guys have stood faithful. You guys have not moved and people in your church have been persecuted. Things have been taken away from them. Their lives, their jobs, their homes, their families have turned against them. And you guys are enduring. You know your doctrine. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to hold up to that doctrine. And Jesus is saying, I commend you for that. But, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That you have abandoned, you have forbidden, you have lost your love. The love that you had when you first came to Christ, you loved him so much and, and you came and, and, and you, know, you loved him and you loved one another, and, but you've lost your first love. And it's, it's sad and it's unfortunate. That's kind of what happens in a lot of marriages. It seems like that love is not, <laughs> not built up on. And it causes this resentment, this anger. And when you think about what was going on in Ephesus, and until I explain everything that was going on in this church, you know, this is basically what was happening. They knew their doctrine, they stood strong. People tried to come in and try to, you know, knock them down. People within the church that were trying to divide the church, they stood strong, they were being persecuted. After a while, you just get like, you know what? I don't want to get to know people anymore. You know, just, just hurry up, Jesus, and come. You know, just, just us four and no more. We we don't want any more because this is hard. It's difficult. And and you know, and so after a while that love can grow cold. And, and you know, one of the reasons why, and I believe this, one of the reasons why I believe that you have unlovable people in your life is to teach you how to love. God teaches you through other people. I call those people EGRs. EGRs means extra grace required. You need that extra grace to put up with their shenanigans and their falsehoods and their lies and, and their all, everything else that they're going through, their hatred, their anger, whatever the case may be. And, and a lot of these people, they, they like to cause drama and they wrap you up in their drama and then they get mad at you for retaliating against their drama. <laughs> they, then they blame it on you because you got mad for something they started. And after a while, Ephesus says, you know what, we, we just, no more. You know, that's, and their love grows cold. You see, we don't have to teach you how to do this, but we have to remind you that you got to let that love grow and grow. Yes, it is messy. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts. But you know what? That's what, God, that's what Jesus Christ did. He says, hey, I love this world. I came to die for this world. And look what they did to me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I love them. And he loved them. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we will never be called to do more than what Jesus Christ has done. And so this brotherly love that Paul is talking about, you know, it's... It, it's when, when we... Are put in, it's part of our circulatory system. I like the way John MacArthur put that. How does God cause our love to increase more and more? By putting us into circumstances that force us to practice Christian love. Love is a circulatory system of the body of Christ. But if our spiritual muscles are not exercised, the circulate, circulation is impaired. You gotta exercise that love muscle, you gotta put it to work and let it flow through. It's part of your DNA. It's part of who you are, and it's got to grow, and it's got to grow, and it's got to grow. And what happens is God puts you in these difficult situations and circumstances to cause your love muscle to grow. So when you're surrounded by unlovable people, when you're surrounded by people that just don't care, when you're surrounded by people that that just don't love, remember God has a purpose and reason behind that. He's placed you there to help you learn how to love. You want that to all fade away? Learn how to love. Love the unlovable. EGR, extra grace required. Number two, we please the Father by leading a quiet life. By leading a quiet life. Going back to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. After he says this, I want you to work, uh, he says, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to aspire to live quietly. Though there was a great urgency in the coming of the Lord, people still, you know, they stopped working. They stopped getting, you know, involved in politics. They stopped getting involved in their community. They stopped getting involved in their jobs, in their homes. And they just kind of left everything and they just kind of hung around. And since they weren't doing anything, you know, they started talking with one another and they started gossiping. Well, look at that guy over there. You know, he, he doesn't care if Jesus comes back or not. Look at the way he's working. You know, it's like he's trying to build a kingdom. And, and so here goes the gossip. And as they were trying to live, you know, in this culture, some of them were very loud in the fact that they were waiting for Jesus. Jesus is coming. He, the end is near. Here's my sandwich sign. And, you know, what? everybody's got to turn, turn or burn, you know, and, and they're out there just screaming it from the top of their lungs. You know, and, and people are looking at these guys like, man, you guys are crazy. So I don't know if I, I don't want to. Find, I don't know if I want to belong to a religion that is going to cause me to do something like that. That's where the word fan came from, from the short from fanatic. And there were a lot of fanatics that were living there, and they, and they, were, they weren't quiet. Paul says, "I want you to aspire to live quietly." There's something that you need to try to do. You need to do this on a regular basis. You, got, you have to leave this quietly. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, I, I've dealt with Christians that say, well, I'm a Christian and I cannot believe that this is going on and you have offended me. And they're also all indignant about what has happened to them because they are Christians and they shouldn't be treated that way. Or they should be given a discount. Or they should be given more. And they want more because of their Christian faith. I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know what, shut up. You know, you shouldn't have to be telling people you're a believer. We're going to see that in a little bit. As a matter of fact, he tells Timothy, lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified. In 2 Thessalonians, you will see, uh, as I mentioned earlier, now, such persons, we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What Paul says is we need to do this quietly and earn our own living. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We don't need to be suing anybody. We don't need to be making a lot, lot of noise against all these people. Uh, these things, there, there are churches and ministries that have made it their mission to go up and, get, and fight against abortion clinics, Muslims, against everything. As a matter of fact, most people know the church not by what they stand for, but what they stand against. Because they're loud about that. See, the word of God is not for the world. The word of God is for us. It's for you. It's to change you. And when Paul is saying, you know, I want you to learn to aspire, he says, I want you to really just draw that into you and and do as much as you can to live peacefully. Live quietly. Number three, we please the Father by learning to mind our own business. The learning to mind mind your own business. You would think, hey, I didn't know that was biblical. You mean I can go around telling people to mind my own business? Yeah, mind your own business. You know this is, this is what Paul is saying. He says, "And to mind your own affairs." You know, it was a common, uh, it was common in, in in secular Greek writings, but used only here in the New Testament. It's not clear how Paul was trying to speak to or who he was trying to speak to. I, I, it's not clear if he was talking to a group or a person. Uh, you know, what is he talking about here? Well, I don't know. Whatever it was, he made it a point to say, "You know, mind your own business." You know, attend, live a quiet life. Number one, learn how to love each other more and more. Live quiet and peacefully. Do your work and mind your business. Mind your business. You see, because my faith and my growth in in Christianity is different than your growth in Christianity. I am to encourage you. I am to help you. I am to encourage you to move forward, but not meddle in your affairs. Meddling in people's affairs was something that Paul was, was delivering to them. You know, you're getting, in, you're getting involved. Number one, you guys are still waiting. You guys are looking for Jesus Christ to come. There is nothing showing you there that he's going to be here anytime soon. There are no signs, except for what I told you. He will be here. And now you're just waiting. And because you're not living a peaceful life, a quiet life, you're meddling in people's affairs. Leave them alone. Because they are working for the Lord. You do what you need to do. 2 Thessalonians 3:11 and 12. This might make it a little bit more clear. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living to mind to their own affairs was because they were acting like busybodies, trying to get into people's business, running around meddling in everyone's problems, running around and causing problems and creating drama just so they can try to fix the drama or be a part of it. Or they would cause drama, and once they did that, okay, I'm done there, I'm going to go over here and do the same thing over here. Paul says, mind your own business, mind your own affairs. And it was, it was the unwise and the undisciplined behavior That the people in Thessalonica were doing apparently, and Paul says, "Well, you need to work, you know, be busy, be busy." Look at First Timothy five thirteen. Besides that, and here in this verse, let me just kind of back up a little bit. Here in this verse, Paul is talking to the to Tim Timothy, and he's talking about the widows in the church, and he says, "You know, the widows ought to be taken care of by their children first and foremost, or their grandchildren." You know, they should be taken care of by the, those that are the family. Because, you know, you have to take care of your own family. Anyone that doesn't take care of their own family is kind of just, just like an unbeliever. You don't want to put that burden on the church. However, there are people that are genuinely in need. And they need help. Back then, they didn't have what we have today. The insurance industry and the, uh, you know, the inheritance. Most All the inheritance went to the males. And women didn't have much. As a matter of fact, if the husband died and they had no son they were left out on the cold. And this, this is where the church came in and started to help them and develop them and, and help them with food. And, and so, but, but Paul says to Timothy, you know, there's a lot of widows out there. And if they're above the age of 60, he said, if they're above the age of 60, what I want you to do is, first of all, encourage the family to take care of them. Help them take care of their parents. Their parents had taken care of them when they were younger. It's kind of like the prayer we prayed a little while ago for Sylvia. Their parents took care of you when you were little. Now it's your responsibility to care for them as far as you can. Now, there are a lot of medical conditions and other things that sometimes it just makes it impossible to do. Like in the case of my mom, she got to the point where we couldn't do anything more. She had to go to the hospital. But my brother tried, and he tried, and he tried. And you get to the point where there's really not much you can do except for to make them comfortable or whatever the case may be to help them to live a comfortable life. And Paul says to them, you know, in, in the younger widows, you know, those widows, you know, don't take care of them. No, no, no. Get them married. Because if not, they're going to be busybodies. They're going to, they're going to go after the lust of the flesh. They're going to follow Satan and his rule. And he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Because in this, with this verse, in this context, Paul is talking about widows. But at the same time, when we're not busy doing something that we should be doing, that's what we do. We think of things to say, things to talk about. We go to people's houses and we go to people's, you know, and, and we start listening to what's going on. And, and uh, you know, how can I pray for you, brother? You know, how can I pray for you, sister? Really? Oh, really? Tell me about what happened. And then we go back to the church. Hey, you know what? We need to pray for so-and-so. Why? Well, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> let me tell you what's going on. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And, and then about a half hour later, oh, yeah, let's pray for them. Okay, dear Lord, help them. Thank you. Amen. And that's it. But this is what happens with the busybodies. Paul says, I want you not to be busybodies. I want you to be working. I want you to, to please the Father by learning to mind your own business. That's what you need to do. Mind your own business and do what it takes to, to be able to stay away from all this stuff that's going on. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the same thing. Again, I have to kind of explain John 21, 22. In John 21, this is after the resurrection, Jesus is at the ocean, is, is at by the lake. And uh, he yells out to, because Peter says, you know, after the, after the resurrection and they were all alone, Peter says, what do what, what we, and some of the disciples says, what do we do? And Peter says, I'm going fishing. So he gets on a boat and goes fishing with his buddies. And then there's a stranger on the shore and he yells at, hey, you guys catch anything? No, we haven't caught anything yet. And he says, well, come on over here. I got some fish. And when they got closer, they recognized it was Jesus. He was sitting there on the shore and. and Peter's kind of looking at us. Whoa, this is Jesus. He's going to feed us fish. And he's just wondering what's happening. Jesus says to Peter as he's cooking, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know, you know I love you. He says, well, we'll feed my sheep. And then he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Oh, we'll feed my lambs. And the third time, Peter, do you, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Some commentators have said that the reason Jesus asked him three times is because Peter denied him three times. Do you really love me? He says, yes, I do. You know I do. Then feed my sheep and follow me. And Jesus takes off walking and Peter's following him. And right behind him is John. And John's following him. He says, hey, Jesus, what about that guy? What about him? Aren't you going to talk to him about that? Is there anything you're going to say to him? You know, what about him? And Jesus says, you know what? If if I decide that he remain in John 21, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? That's none of your business. OK, don't worry about another believer. Don't worry about what they're doing, not doing. You follow me. Mind your own business. As a matter of fact, the same thing happened in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, right before the ascension. They're on the mountain of olives. And all the disciples were there. And they were all wondering, okay, well, you know, he's been around for 40 days now. We've seen him resurrected. Man, the power of Jesus Christ. It is just awesome to hear. And people are hearing about the resurrection. He died. We saw him die. We saw him buried. And now we see him alive. And they asked him, Jesus, are you now going to restore Israel back to its rightful place? In other words, is the kingdom of God going to be established now? Are we because we're ready? And you know what Jesus tells them? He says, and this is a Greek term right here, isnenya. It means, your business? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And we'll talk about verse 8 here in just a little bit. He says, it's, it's, not, it's none of your business. You know, because you have a mission and I'll, I'll share that with you right now. Chapter 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and all Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That is your mission. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. Don't worry when that kingdom of God is going to be established. You have a mission. And number four, we please the Father by laboring with our hands. We please the Father by laboring with our hands. And he concludes verses 11 and 12, And to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know, for the Greeks, which a lot of these Thessalonians were, for the Greeks, it was beneath them to do manual labor. They had slaves for that. They had wives for that. They had uh, mistresses for that. They had children for that. It was beneath them. You know, you know, I don't get my hands all dirty. To work with the hands was degrading. And so therefore, they had, they had everybody else do it for them. However, with the most early Christians coming from the working class, the church dignified manual labor as an honorable endeavor. That's something that we do. We work with our, heart, with our hands. And I think that's what most men, at least that they used to, they used to pride themselves in having a job and being able to provide for their family. They, they had no problem working with their hands. And the church started to realize that. Paul himself was a tent maker because he didn't want to put any burden on anybody else. I, I'll take care of myself. You know, God's going to take care of me. And, and so to be able to, to, to come across these people, you know, what, what, what you guys are doing is by waiting and holding off for Jesus Christ to return you're being idle you're 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 not striving to love one another you're not striving to be uh, you know to not be a busybody you you're not you're not trying to grow you're just there you're gossiping you're idle you're not working and so Paul says and I want you to work with your hands remember as we instructed you so that you see, this is what we want you to do this is not something that we just, you know, just want you to figure out. But I taught you how to do this. Second Thessalonians three ten, and this is part of what I talked about a little while ago. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. This is a military term. I commanded you: if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Like I said, my mom used to say it like this: el que no trabaja no come. That was if you don't work, you don't eat. That was that was my mom's turn. I thought it was my mom's turn until I read it in the Book of Thessalonians. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians three ten and twelve. For, for we hear, or the rest of it I should say. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such. Persons, we command and encourage in encouraging the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, they were waiting for Jesus Christ. They were all just standing there on the top of the mountain. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And, uh, and it's kind of like what some people today have given up. You know, this is, you know what? You can have this world. I don't want anything to do with it. I ain't got kids in the school system, anyways. You know, I'm not getting an abortion. Yeah, that's on you guys. We still need to keep going and working and developing. Ephesians 4.28, he tells the people in Ephesus that the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone else. You know, the the purpose of you working, the purpose of you gaining income, the purpose of you having extra money, it's not so that you can pile it up. See, finances, treasures, it's kind of like manure. When you pile it up, it just stinks. It just does. But when you spread it around, things grow. The purpose for you having an income is to help others that are in need. Specifically, those in the body of Christ. And when Paul says, you know, you you cannot be out there just taking whatever you want. Work. Do honest work. So that you may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why Paul says, you ought to work. You can't share with people if you're on the dole, if you're on welfare, if you're receiving government aid. And you know, our government has caused a lot of people to really depend on the government. Amen? Can somebody say amen to that? <laughs> you're laughing. I, I wonder why. Okay, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There are people that, well, I don't even want to go there anymore. But, but the, the purpose of that is to get them away from this. Because, see, when you work with your hands, God provides for you and he gives you so you can bless other people. But when you don't work with your hands, you're getting free stuff. You don't want to let it go. And you hold on to it. In Matthew chapter 9, he says, here's what you need to do. He says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The work that we should be doing, of course, taking care of our families, earning a living, working with our hands, not being busybodies, minding our own business, you know, loving one another even more so. All those points that we talked about just right now. And the, 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 what we are to be doing is all of that. But in the process of it, we are to pray for the Lord, to the Lord of the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of people out there right now that need to hear Gospel message. And we need to pray for more workers. We need to pray for our children's ministry. Look what happened. You know, pretty soon we're going to have youth here. We're going to have young people, teenagers, you know, 12, 13, 14, and, and, and up. Pretty soon, and we're going to need some, you know, and, and they'll come in and we'll send them over next door as well. And so we need to keep praying for the Lord of the harvest. And I keep sharing this with you. We have everything that we need right now for this church. What we have right now is what we need. But the moment that we start getting teenagers in here, God's going to send us workers. He's sending us workers even now. And we're developing and we're working. When we start this Doctrine and Grace class, it's going to surprise you and say, Wow, I never understood the Bible that way. You mean John 3.16 really doesn't say everyone? For whosoever? I thought for whosoever meant everybody. You mean John 3.16? That that's, that's what it really means? We're going to go through the doctrines of grace studying the book of John. It's going to be the first Wednesday of, well, the, I'm not quite too sure yet, but we're going to the first week of September. The first week of September, I haven't nailed down a date yet, but we have an interesting class. We're going to go over five lessons or five studies. It's going to take us 12 weeks to get through. We'll finish it before the end of the year. But you're going to be surprised to know that this is right there in the Bible. And you're going to come to realize, oh, yeah, well, I already knew that. Because I have been sharing this with you from the pulpit from time to time. But the workers need to be ready because they're coming, beloved, they're coming. I said this to you a little while ago in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. When, they, when Jesus says, you know, it's, nenya. it's none your business. None your business would to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all Samaria and to the end of all the earth. That's your mission. As a matter of fact, we call this the Great Commission. In, in Matthew 28, 18-20. 17-20. Then, uh, then they came to Jesus and they saw him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them. To obey all that I have commanded you. That is. And lo I am with you to the end of the age. That is our commission. As the father has sent me. He says in John. So I send you. That is our mission. Our labor. Our, our, we are to be working. Taking care of ourselves. So that we don't depend on anybody else. So that people come to know the Jesus Christ. Who, who he is. Look at verse 12. And I'll close with this. So that. You may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It is, oh, that's a harsh word. I'm just going to say it is a shame that believers or so-called believers do the scandalous things they do at work. So try to get over, try to get, you know, by, try to get, you know, around. And other people are watching them and seeing them. And not doing what they're supposed to do. They're idle bodies. They're busy bodies. Gossipers. They're lazy. They're dependent on other people. They don't work. But I'm a believer. I believe in God. Jesus is coming. Paul says that the reason he wants you to do this is because Jesus Christ is coming. And they need to hear the message. But you know what? He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Not insiders. Well, insiders as well. But he wants you to be a testimony, a walking, living testimony. Like I said at the beginning, you don't have to proclaim, oh, I am a Christian. Oh, I can't believe I was so offended. Oh, I can't believe you. You don't need to say any of that. You know what you need to do is walk. In a very pecu- you're, you're a very peculiar person. you got got so, certain boundaries. You, I won't. I'm black and white. That's it. God says don't do it. I'm not doing it. God says do it. I'm going to do it. But everybody's doing it. Yeah, well, that's because they're unholy. I mean, common. And I want to set an example in my life, in my work ethic, in my family. I want to set an example. And here's the parameters this is where I'm at. Paul says, This is this way you can walk properly before the outsiders, those that don't know. And you won't be dependent on anybody else because God's going to take care of you. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The coming of the Lord. And that will be next week's lesson. Let me ask you to stand. It's sobering to know that everything that you already knew Everything that you already knew you should be doing and being about. Paul kind of just you know, lays it out there. And these, these people, they knew. You know what? You're right. We should stay away from sexual immorality. That should not be part of our life. There shouldn't even be a hint of that. you know. We shouldn't be like the Gentiles or everybody else with this passionate love that we have for others. Because God's called us into holiness. And so therefore, you know, we need to listen to what God's word says. It's not the pastor that said it, God said it. The pastor is just reinforcing what God said. We need to love one another more and more. We need to lead a quiet life. And not be so boisterous and so, you know, active in in trying to make a lot of noise and trying to put ourselves in the newspaper or whatever the case may be on the radio. We need to learn how to mind our own business and we need to work with our hands. So that your testimony is not aligned. So that other people can see that you're different because God is different. Father in heaven, thank you once again for that huge difference on how big that difference is and how you stand out above everything and everyone and how your people are called to do the same thing, to be different. And Lord, when we understand this idea of holiness. We can never be pure. We can never be perfect. We can never be that kind of holy. But we can be separate. We can be different. That our families, our friends, our co-workers, everybody around us, they recognize that we are different. And so I thank you, Lord, for your word today and how it just penetrates our heart and the conviction that it brings in our life. And I pray, Father, that if the convicting word is, has, been, has penetrated a heart here today, that we learn how to repent and turn away from what you've shown us and turn to you and stay away from that sin. So thank you, Father, once again for your word. I pray that you dismiss from this place but never from your presence. We do desire to be more like you. We want to aspire to be Uh, to live quiet lives. We want to aspire to mind our own business. And we want to work hard so that we can please you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right. Stick around for some fellowship.